0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. Also, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, volume 317 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled, Education for Special Needs, the Curative Education Course, 12 Lectures, translated by Anna Moise. This is Lecture 3, given in Dornach, on the 27th of June, 1924. Well, now, my friends, we have talked about the relationships between etheric, physical, and astral body and the eye organization as they may be seen in what is called an, in quotes, abnormal child. Yesterday I spoke of the strange way in which the ether body may be abnormal in its configuration because it does not properly fit into the general system of thoughts in the cosmic ether. And we tried on the basis of this to show that the outcome of this may present irregularities in all kinds of directions. If you are able to grasp this, you will perhaps also be able, in the course of these lectures, to gain a particular conviction, and this is the following. Approaching our educational measures in a general mood of soul, we will need to find a method for treating every child as an individual case. But there is something we must know, and the essential part of it is that in the whole of modern psychiatry one cannot really know anything about mental diseases, as they are called, when it comes to method. If you know these things, you will arrive at the method for treatment in the given case. So it is much less important to be given measures for this or that. What is really important is that you understand on principle that in this field, too, we develop a sound pathology, a sound diagnosis, which will, of its own accord, lead to the right treatment. With many of the so-called mental diseases The situation is that, for reasons which you may also come to see in the course of these lectures, one can no longer cure them, or at least do so only under extremely difficult conditions, even if one were able to take account of the spiritual scientific aspects. We would need a clinic for these people with mental diseases where adults might be cured, even if this is extraordinarily difficult. I am referring to sick people of a particular kind, especially to cases that are important to us when it comes to childhood years. On the other hand, you will see that the right educational treatment given in childhood can definitely help. And we shall see that something which is among the hardest things when we see it in adults, epilepsy, for example, really has good prospects for improvement or even cure in early childhood, providing we are able to see it in the right way. One will then arrive at measures, certainly in individual cases, providing one knows the principle of transition from the underlying problem to what we need to do. But we must know the underlying cause. You see, people cannot know this on the basis of present-day psychiatry, and that is because people have no idea today that there is such a thing as a specific I, capital, organization, or a specific astral body. Even the ether body is still denied existence by many today. I won't insist on names, but when certain people speak of certain concepts from theory as Drish does, they do not perceive the ether body because they are afraid of it. But in modern science, people are at least coming to perceive the organic etheric by starting out from the physical. The important thing, which one cannot know unless one has knowledge of astral body and eye organization, is this. To begin with, take the connection between physical body and etheric body. This is maintained throughout life, from conception and embryonic development to death. For it persists through all states of sleep. On the other hand, their connection with the astral body and the eye organization is interrupted every time we sleep. The way in which the eye organization and the astral body behave in the physical body and ether body in the waking state has to be seen in the right way. If you altogether want to have a real idea, concerning people who are said to be mentally ill. It is absolutely vital to know how astral body and I integrate into the physical body and etheric body according to their essential nature, if one is to have any sensible idea at all about so-called mental illness. You see, even anthroposophists commonly think, not from following anthroposophy, which is very precise in its formulations, but from old thinking habits, that when a person wakes up the astral body and the eye organization move into the physical and etheric body, combining with them the way hydrogen and oxygen combine. That is not how it is. If you look at this clairvoyantly, it is like this. See plate 4. If this is the physical body and this the etheric body, the astral body does indeed enter and... The eye organization does also enter. All of it comes in, and you see this transition. But this transition, which consists in the astral body and the eye organization taking hold of the physical and ether body, is not all. And this, I'd say, is where a fact in human life comes in that is extraordinarily important. Let us start with the eye organization. The eye organization not only takes hold of the etheric and the physical body when it returns as we wake up, but takes hold of the outside world, the forces of the outside world in the human body. What does this mean? Well, consider that we have gravity, which acts like this, see plate 4. We are standing upright when we awake, within the direction taken by gravity. Simply think of gravity as being a force which is active there, that is, in the direction of the forces of weight. There are two ways of looking at this, and we must be really clear about this. One might be that the eye, we'll leave the etheric body aside for the moment, takes hold of the physical body, and the physical body then obeys gravity. You know, we enter into gravity when we walk, having to find equilibrium and so on. That would be one way of looking at it. We take hold of the physical body with the eye as we wake up. The physical body is heavy and subject to the weight of the earth. And we are now subject to the earth's weight with our physical body, which gives us an indirect relationship to the physical force of gravity. This is one possibility. It is just as if I had an indirect connection with gravity due to the weight of the book which I pick up. So this is one way of looking at it. It is wrong, incorrect. The other way is this. The eye slips into the physical body, takes hold of the physical body, but enters so far that it makes the physical body non-heavy. The physical body loses its gravity as the eye slips in. As far as I am aware, therefore, gravity has been overcome for my eye organization when I am awake and upright. And this also comes to physical expression in the warmth organism. There is no possible way of entering into an indirect relationship to gravity. The eye enters into direct relationship, makes itself as I part of gravity which means it eliminates the physical body this is what it is all about you are all the time entering into the real gravity of the earth with your eye organization as you walk not in any roundabout way via the physical body you enter into direct relationship to the telluric principle It is the same with the ether body. This, too, is within a system of forces. Let us take one of these forces. I have frequently mentioned that as human beings, walking about on earth, we are subject to a most powerful force of buoyancy. We have a brain that weighs 1,500 grams on average. If this weight of 1,500 grams were to press on the base of the brain with its fine blood vessels those vessels would immediately be squashed. But it does not press down, for it is actually floating in cerebrospinal fluid. This gives it buoyancy, and it loses as much of its weight as the displaced amount of water weighs. This displaced amount of water weighs about 20 grams less than the brain itself, so that the brain only presses on its base with a weight of 20 grams. Thus we have a heavy brain, but this is not pressing down, for it has buoyancy. We live in that buoyancy. Our ether body lives in it. But when we slip into the ether body with our eye organization, we are not indirectly in buoyancy, but directly so, with our eye organization. Our human organization relates to all the forces of earth, to the whole physical world. And this is a direct relationship, not an indirect one. Do you see now what our eye organization relates to there? In the first place, it relates to gravity, that is, to the earthly sphere. For my friends, matter, as physicists call it, does not exist. In reality, there are only forces, and the forces are much the same as gravity, for instance. There are, of course, other forces as well, certain electrical forces, magnetic forces, and the eye organization is in direct relation to them all, being inside normal human beings for the whole waking period. We may say that these forces are everywhere we consider to be Earth, in quotes. Everything that is, quote, in quotes, water to us is in a state of balance. The eye organization is in direct connection with it. It is also in direct connection with everything that is like in quotes, air. As you know in physics, we have to study not only ordinary mechanics, but also hydro mechanics and aeromechanics, because the balance processes and meteorological processes have their own specific form in the air. Finally, the eye organization also relates directly to part of the general state of heat with part of the general heat forces, a state we always go through when we live in the physical world. See plate 5, eye organization, earth, water, air. There's a, the word heat with a dash through it. And then astral body has heat with a dash through it. And then below that is light. And then chemism and then life ether and a footnote chemism is the quality of chemical activities properties or relationships and a footnote i am crossing out heat because it is only part of it we wake up and as spirit we make ourselves part of the world of earth's forces with our eye organization in reality the relationship is not mediated physically but by magic This can only be within a given space, the limits of our organism being the boundaries. You will have gained a great deal once you begin to realize that the relationship which the I organization has is not physical, but magical. If we now move on to the astral body, this relates directly, and not only just via the ether body, to certain forces that influence us in the waking state. This is again a part of the heat force. Heat acts on the physical organism with one part and back on to the ether organism with one part. The astral body is then connecting directly with the forces of light. You have to know, however, that light forces are something different in spiritual science from what they are thought to be by physicists today. Let us not go into theories. But you know there is, of course, something behind the light qualities we perceive around us, and that is in the ether. So that it is fair to say light is an etheric power. In ordinary science today we speak of light as something that lies in things that are illuminated. In spiritual science one says, Light is also the principle that is behind other sensory perceptions, an example being the light in perceptions of sound. When we perceive sound, people altogether only attempt in external physics to speak of the external correlate of that perception of sound in terms of air set in motion. Air set in motion is merely the medium for the actual sound element. The real sound element is something etheric, and the vibration in the air is merely the effect of this etheric vibration. Light also lives in the perception of smells. In short, something much more general than light, than what is called light in modern physics, is behind all sensory perceptions. It is no doubt misleading, I admit, to speak of light in this way. For essentially this is how people would speak of light in the old spiritual science up to the 12th, 13th centuries. Then it was no longer understood and people tried to use different terms though they are even less comprehensible. This is why the books on alchemy written after the 12th century are so incomprehensible. What matters to you is that it is this which we call light. It is with this light that the astral body connects with everything that gives rise to sensory perceptions on earth, not in the roundabout way via the ether body, but directly. That is particularly interesting. Outside light lives in the ether, but we also have etheric principles in us. The light acts on the ether body, but we do not only relate to the light that is in us, but leaving it aside, integrate ourselves in the light that is flowing outside. It is the same with the chemism outside, which is active throughout the world. We integrate ourselves in it directly. And this is particularly important, for it means that in their waking hours, human beings are integrated in a kind of cosmic chemism. Only lifeless chemism is known in present-day science and at most a bit of organic chemism. There is no knowledge of the chemism that is general and cosmic. We integrate ourselves into this when we wake up. and We also integrate ourselves into the general life of the world, into the life ether. All of this directly. Everything I have been outlining for you must be achieved when human beings are gradually developing their second body from the first as I have described it, and also their third body. All this must be achieved by human beings entering fully into themselves, penetrating their own essential nature, into the earthly and cosmic forces that are active in them. They must be able to take hold of the world actively. At present, there clearly is just one thing in just one field in modern science where physicists are in actual fact proceeding in the way one would wish to see in many fields, and that is in the organization of the eye, E-Y-E. Consider looking at the eye the way a proper old physicist would do, seeing it as a physical arrangement and instrument used in physics. One draws the same figures in the eye, if one wants to understand it, of light refraction by the lens, creating the objective image, and so on, only it is quite impossible to move on to the way in which the psyche intervenes in the physical. But the whole of this is terribly interesting. Proceeding entirely as one does in physics, one then has this whole drawing before one, and there comes to a stop, wanting to get to the psychic aspect via the brain. Just take a look at the amusing philosophical head-over-heels-tumbles, all these interesting but in fact completely stupid theories of psychophysical parallelism or interaction. In reality, the I, capital, organization, and the astral body come right up in the I, E-Y-E, to the form we draw physically and take hold of the physical in the I, E-Y-E. When it comes to the I, eye, E-Y-E, people are close to grasping the real situation because the peculiar segregation of the eye does force one to do so, with the eye almost on the outside and built in from outside during embryonic development. With the eye, one does so, but it actually applies for the whole human being. We should grasp the whole human being inwardly as physical, spirit-physical, thus able to add the fleeting powers of light to the earthly forces. One would really have to recognize within the human organization something which truly exists there in the periphery, really coming from the surroundings, and is taken hold of by human beings in such a direct way, something which is constructed on the principles of physics. But what would be the situation with anomalous conditions? With an anomalous condition, something, some organ, it cannot be the whole organism, may be in a situation where it is not possible for the individual to make a direct connection with the outside world. An organ may block the way, as it were, so that because of this organ the individual cannot connect with the outside world. What must inevitably happen then? Take any organ, see plate 5, the right side, let us say the lung. The lung takes up such a position in the human organism that the individual cannot connect with the outside world when he wakes up. But assume that the individual is asleep and in his sleep something happens in the lung which organizes the lung in such a way that the individual, if he were to wake up, would go down into the lung but would not be able to get out into the outside world. With regard to the lung organization, his I, capital, and astral body, would then need to push their way into the lung, but would not be able to get out again. The situation must be that the individual enters with his astral body, but is able to go out again into the world in all directions. The lung should merely be the transition. But now it does not provide that transition but holds on to astral body and eye, or rather would hold on to them when the individual would wake up. The problem is that he will definitely wake up under those circumstances, for because of the specific chemism, the lung is infiltrated with some substance or other in fine distribution. Some subtle form of matter that has a special affinity to the lung fills the organization, which has been blocked in this way. The lung is then irregular, and the individual therefore wakes up. But how? He wakes up, but without gaining consciousness, because for that one has to come out. One comes to conscious awareness when one has come right through. You will wake up if you have merely entered. If you come all the way through, you gain conscious awareness. You get stuck in there and sleep. The healthy state of unconsciousness continues on into pathological unconsciousness, meaning that the individual does wake up, but does not come to conscious awareness. You see, we are in one direction exactly describing the condition of someone with epilepsy, doing so entirely from the inside. Epilepsy is exactly as I have described it, particularly in childhood. We, therefore, have to say what is the actual situation with epilepsy? It is that an epileptic can enter into the physical and ether body with his eye organization and his astral body. But, on the other hand, he does not come out into the physical world, but is held fast in there. Just consider what the situation is when the astral body goes in there, let us say into the lung, is held fast in there and cannot get out again. It is pressed against the surface of the lung. The astral body and the eye organization are pushed there, held fast there. You see, it is because of this that in such a case you always get the eye organization and the astral body held fast below the surface of the organs. To the outside world, this presents as a spasm or seizure. These are seizures. Every time you get a seizure, there is internal congestion on the surface of some organ. Congestion exists above all in parts of the brain, and we know how the parts of the brain relate to other parts, but may certainly mean that something is held back in the liver or lung, with the congestion in the brain merely a projection, a weaker image. Every time you have a seizure, you note this congestion of the eye organization and astral body within an organ. And it is only now that one has come to the true cause of the epileptic seizures, where we otherwise have nothing but a description. You cannot really get to know this condition unless you are able to move from physical and ether body to eye and astral body. Otherwise you have no substance in speaking of seizures, unless you know that astral body and eye organization are horribly stuffed together there, at the surface. They cannot get out, push out, and are held back. If you now consider what we have been discussing, you will say, of your own accord, what do I do now when the symptoms of epilepsy present in childhood, loss of consciousness linked to seizures or phenomena that replace them, which we'll consider later? In the individual case, we must, as it were, experiment, using our instincts. First you find out if the disorders of consciousness are much related, as is certainly the case with some epileptics, to signs of ordinary dizziness. Signs of dizziness develop. You will find that a child is inclined that way. So if the losses of consciousness are but brief, and the child shows noticeable signs of dizziness instead, you will realize where there is something wrong. It will be there. The eye organization and the astral body do not relate directly to the powers of balance. You must then, first of all, establish if the situation with the child is that the eye organization and the astral body do not enter into the right relationship to the powers of balance. You now make the child do physical exercises or eurythmy. And as he does so, hand him objects, the familiar dumbbells he played five, or the like. Give him balancing exercises to do, letting him do balancing exercises between second dentition and sexual maturity. At that time, the child will still have the possibility, if you give him two dumbbells of equal weight, they need to have been weighed on a chemist's balance, and make him do exercises with the dumbbells and eurythmic movements or other physical exercise movements with the dumbbells. That will be one thing. You then put a dumbbell that is lighter than the other in his left hand. Make him do exercises again. Then put a dumbbell lighter than the other in his right hand. More exercises. Then you tie something that has weight, it need not be particularly heavy, to one leg. Make him walk with this so that he is aware of the force which is pulling on the left. He is not aware of the force when he walks in the ordinary way, but he has to enter into it with his eye organization, and will then immediately notice if you attach something to him. You then tie the weight on the other leg, causing him to do the thing in a more spiritual way, make him sense it, think his way into the movements, into the extensor movement of the left arm, the extensor movement of the right arm, the extensor movement in both arms you make him consciously aware of gravity but make him raise one leg leaving the other on the ground in short in cases where bouts of dizziness make you realize that he does not properly enter into earthly forces you get him to make such movements where he has to learn to be in control of his balance you will also manage to treat children with epilepsy and epileptoid conditions by making them adapt to the other forces Well, I think you'll agree that it's all right up to this point. You will no doubt get results with some epileptics where you see, perhaps, that they, above all, have problems in the circulatory system, that the circulation of juices is really bringing about the phenomena. So when you perceive that particular sensations of nausea are connected with the epileptic attacks, when they take the form of seizures or also bouts of vertigo, you will know you are dealing with an inability to adapt to the watery element. It will be good in that case to make the child as much as possible aware of the watery element before it is taken up into the organism. You do this by preparing the meals so that the child is as sensible as possible of the food. Externally, we might get somewhere by teaching the child to swim. Learning to swim is very good for epileptics, though we have to use good sense in considering what this is about. Carefully regulated breathing exercises are not bad for the actual clouding of consciousness which occurs, but only if the individual concerned has severe nausea. They establish a connection with the air, and to get a real relationship to warmth, it will be necessary, especially for epileptic children, to get used to feeling the warmth. It is dreadful the way ordinary children are allowed to go about half-naked, bare-legged, which is very frequently the cause of a grumbling appendix or even appendicitis at a later age. People are not aware of this. And for epileptic children, it is absolute poison. Epileptic children need to be dressed in such a way that they always have a slight tendency to perspire, that they are always just about to perspire, being dressed just a bit too warmly. That is actually therapeutic. All this horrible talking about hardening means that people are terribly hardened as children, with the result that when they have grown old they won't even be able to cross a sunlit market square without going weak at the knees. You are not hardened if you cannot cross a sunlit market square without taking harm. You should see the gentlemen, the way they take off their top hats as they cross a sunlit market square their knees threatening to give way all the time those are as a rule the results for life of being hardened in the modern way we have been giving our attention mainly to things which in childhood still guide the eye organisation into the elements into which it must be guided but this is also where the sphere begins where the physician must come indirectly in addition to the educational aspect For with these things, if there are the symptoms and signs of epilepsy, we can only manage by using medicines, and we should not shy away from using medicines to manage the situation. As soon as the epileptic phenomena are tied in especially with the things they tie up with when it is mainly the astral body which is involved, that is, when the upper etheric elements prevent the astral body from getting through to the outside world, we must directly influence these elements within the human being. It is then a matter of truly finding the way, but above all of first establishing if the astral body is involved or not. And how do we perceive if the astral body is involved? Well, anyone who has often been observing children with epileptic or epileptoid dispositions we'll have noted two states that differ greatly from one another. One is the situation where the child does not challenge a moral judgment, being compliant with regard to the things of a moral kind that one wants to teach every child. If you are dealing with epileptic or epileptoid children who take easily to the moral world order, you may perhaps leave it at what I have been saying. But when you are dealing with children whose minds grow closed to moral principles. Children, for instance, will easily grow violent during seizures, for epileptic seizures may be masked by the fact that a child shows violence, often having no memory of this. If this happens, if defects show themselves that appear to be moral, then it is a matter of using actual medicines, even in childhood so that you definitely try and combat epilepsy with medicinal agents. Agents, for instance, that are in general use, or those such as sulfur or belladonna, recommended by us, starting regular treatment. Well, we will talk about this more medical aspect later. Today I just want to show how, in looking at things from the outside, we must move on from treatment that is more educational to one that is more medical. And with some epileptic children, it will absolutely be the case that, seeing they are relating well to the outside world, we must actually avoid external exercise and give preference to internal treatment. At the same time, this is the point where epileptic signs and symptoms successively change into other signs and symptoms. Yesterday I said that thoughts cannot really be wrong. And now I have all the time been talking about the way in which human beings make thoughts their own. A phenomenon like this, that the astral body is dammed up in the lung, arises because of the thought not being properly integrated in the lung. So these are all thought defects. They arise when we are not able, as we descend, to govern our organism in the right way, so that we may build it up the second time but we also bring the will principle with us from our earlier life on earth, and this is distributed among the individual organs. Now, if thoughts simply cannot be wrong, but are always right, and they only get distorted in us by our organism, so that organs may also be distorted, then the situation with the will as it comes into earthly from pre-earthly existence is that it can hardly be right. It arrives in complete uncertainty and must build itself up in the thought system. Nowhere in the world is the thought system wrong. Hardly anywhere is the will system right, somehow, unless the human being does something about it. Human beings do bring a will system that is not right into the world under all kinds of circumstances. The result is that in becoming a physical human being, we never descend into the world with morality. We have to acquire morality, bit by bit. We needed the morality we had for our earlier incarnation between death and rebirth, when we were occupied with our wisdom-filled building process, and we have long since forgotten it. Morality has to be newly gained in every single life on earth. It means that something highly significant now occurs. A-moral as we enter from pre-earthly life, we must now develop sense in the will. We enter into our organs with the will and must develop a feeling in our will for the moral elements presented to us. It is truly wonderful how the moral impulses flow into the child as he learns to talk, Because of this, it is of tremendous importance to us to perceive how imitation extends also to the most subtle aspects. It is important to take note of this, for if the teachers and parents around a child are immoral, talk immorally, it will not be the outward action but the immoral content which is imitated deep down in the child's inner organization. The situation is that we do also relate to the outside world, but by the roundabout route through the whole organism and not through individual organs. And if flow is stopped, this happens because whereas before we did not come out everywhere with our thoughts, we now do not get out with the will. And that shows itself in moral defects. You now see the inner causes of moral defects. When the element that is meant to enter and push through, find its way through, from pre-earthly existence is held back. When it is meant to find the way through to moral judgment. We must be able to take in the morality in our environment. We are unable to do so on occasion, and that is when our organization of spirit and soul is dammed up and we are held fast in it, in the physical organization if we do not get through with our organization of spirit and soul. Well, you see, there the situation is that we are indeed wholly in the moral sphere, but this needs to be recognized in the right way. When you are dealing with actual signs and symptoms of epilepsy, that is, the symptoms I spoke of, bouts of vertigo, loss of consciousness and so on, you will have to make your diagnosis on the basis of such phenomena, which are transient. If you wish to perceive defects in the moral sphere, you have to think of persistent rather than transient symptoms. The most important symptoms, what makes them develop? Everything is, of course, due to karma. We have to consider two aspects, the condition of the human individual and the influence of karma. Now, think of the embryo placed in the organism in such a way that it is compressed here, that the brain is made too narrow for the rest of the organization. You then have to take note of this. With a brain that is too narrow, the radiation from the brain that is particularly important from the 7th to the 14th year of life is disrupted and dammed up during childhood development because a reflection of the dammed-up principle develops in the function of the spleen. What is the result? The result of the damming up is that the child does not develop an inner sympathy for anything by way of moral judgment. He has no sympathy for this. Just as color does not exist for someone who is colorblind, so the moral impulses in the things we say, in our admonitions, do not exist for some children. This makes the child morally blind, and it is then up to us to remove this moral blindness. Outward deformations can thus always be a marvelous symptom for us if we proceed with care. And you will always find a great many objections raised against the quack use of any kind of phrenology. But everyone should nevertheless study genuine phrenology, to be able to assess moral defects. Readers aside, the word is quack-solver, spelled Q-U-A-C-K-S-A-L-V-E-R. End of readers aside. For it is certainly interesting to see that moral defects connected with karma are so powerful, where immorality is karmic, that they will, without fail, show up as deformation in the physical organism. On the other hand, it is extraordinarily valuable to attempt special education measures. If you have the qualities I mentioned yesterday, this inner courage and facing up to decisions, you will also be able to give the necessary inner strength to your admonitions, which will be needed in that case. You need inner strength for this. A cure can be achieved, and I have shown this on several occasions, by giving a particular example. You see, a well-known German poet consulted an expert phrenologist, he was indeed a famous poet, and the phrenologist, expecting to find all kinds of interesting things, suddenly blanched as his fingers touched a particular area, and did not have the courage to say more, though usually he was a great talker when things were interesting. The poet started to laugh and said, quote, I know you have come across the thieving instinct, I did have that in great measure. The phrenologist had discovered that the poet could have been a kleptomaniac, but had transformed his kleptomania into the art of poetry. That is the situation. We have to tackle things in the way I showed yesterday, and we really must not judge things from the word go the way we usually judge them. For you see, it is like this if you are with someone, His human qualities are mainly developed toward two opposite poles, the pole of thoughts and ideas and the pole of will-quality. Yes, the sphere of ideas is sick, if not a thief, a truly thorough thief. The idea forming organization in the brain must be a dreadful thief, not applying morality to the things it is meant to take in. It must be of a mind to steal everything. That is one pole and we tend to be inclined toward epilepsy or something or other if we do not grasp and take things in all directions with our idea-forming organization. But this must not, for heaven's sake, slip down into the will organization. This must hold back. It must be receptive, have a feeling for what is mine and yours, a feeling which only develops by living in the world. Just think, animals, which live more in the life of ideas than human beings do, would always be starving if they did not have a sense for taking everything available. We must be able to penetrate these things. It must not slip down into the will organization, but has to remain in the subtle way of forming ideas. If I may put it like this, if the astral infiltration of the brain, which is perfectly justified in acquiring everything... Were to slip down into the organization of metabolism and limbs, or into the rhythmic system, a tendency would develop in the will toward the principle that belongs in the idea's organization, an urge to grasp and take everything. This may be relatively harmless, and you can see this when a child begins to keep everything he finds and starts a collection. We do, of course, always fight against such things, so that they won't be so extreme, You must get in the habit of spotting the disposition for this. Yes, of course, the child will not come to this because one begins to chastise him. But you must watch carefully, if the child has this inclination, somehow to put things aside for himself, putting them together, and you need to be sentient as to where it begins to be pathological. It begins to be pathological when it goes beyond a certain limit. Conventional standards of behavior involve many things, but people have no judgment, unless there happens to be a particular cause, as to how much you are allowed to collect. You may be utterly bourgeois and collect postage stamps, and in that case acquisitiveness is relatively harmless. But when a child develops it in imitation, this indicates that this acquisitiveness has slid down in the child into the sphere of the will then it truly is a matter of carefully observing whether it is a matter of karmic moral defects, as in the case of kleptomania, seeing it in the terms I described yesterday and working with the child out of such an inner feeling, teaching it morality as effectively as possible with tremendous inner liveliness, and not casually. Use inner liveliness to think up stories where what the child is doing in life is taken to the point of absurdity, You tell them about a theft and do so over and over again. This will truly intervene in karma. There you are having an influence by means of special education, and it can stay within the moral sphere if you are indeed fully engaged, if you are quite individually interested in how things are done. Every kleptomaniac is extraordinarily interesting. The qualities of forming ideas have slipped all the way to the tip of his toes, the fingertips. This is something one must know, of course, if one wants to guide him. One may need to make the kind of gestures part of one's story which the kleptomaniac likes to make. You enter completely into the case. Think up legends, stories, in which these things are taken to the point of absurdity. Think on this we are also going to present kleptomaniacs. Think it all through more and more. You will see that this is exactly the way in which you will move from diagnosis to therapy in this field. The end of Lecture 3